Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, all. Um, this is Dr. Simon, and I do a show and have been doing it for a number of years now uh, called The Stories We Live By. And today, this is the first of what I hope will be a series of shows. And I should talk about what made me think of this particular series of shows. I don't know how long I'm going to stay on the air. Um, I'm not going to try, as I usually do, to flesh out an entire topic. But uh, just start and, and, and create the frame for why I am discussing a topic called how psychiatric stories create mental illnesses and undermine our democracy. And the real motive for this is the words undermining our democracy. Um, I believe our democracy is in danger. And I want to do everything I can to, to protect that democracy, a, a, a way of thinking and acting that I have discussed elsewhere, especially in my book at some length, that represents what is called democracy. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings are created equal with certain unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's built into the fabric that defines the democracy in our country. And that's under attack. Now, I don't want to talk about politics. I'm not a show about politics. But when, when I was in college and then graduate school, I realized that our subject areas are artificially cordoned off from one another. They're partitioned. So you can study economics and you can study politics and you can study psychology and biology, um, a whole variety of topics that relate to the functioning of a human being and keep them separate, or at least the courses try to keep them separate. There is no question in my mind that being raised in poverty or being raised in great wealth will affect the kind of psychology an individual might have. And while it's incredibly complex, the number of factors, uh, <clears throat> genetic, biological, social, that create an individual's personality, a way of looking at the world and behaving in it, economics is only one part of that, but it's important. Equally, or maybe as important, are the politics which we people are raised. Now, the, the, let me go back a second into to where I come from on this, why I picked that politics, rather than economics, or rather than a whole variety of other factors that uh, uh, could shape individual psychology or in group psychology. The most important uh, moment I had as a psychologist that led to this show, this kind of show, and the books I have now written for 20 years, really was a, a book by Thomas Zoss, or a number of books by Thomas Zoss, who was a psychiatrist, 
and wrote what I consider to be an incredibly important book for every knowledgeable, educated citizen in our country or in the world to uh, read, in which Zas lays out an argument that's never been refuted successfully by any of his critics. In fact, it's Zas they attack. They attack the messenger, but have trouble with the message. That there is no evidence that what we call mental illness is that what we call uh, troubled and troubling behavior, that we call stuff that we could all agree is crazy, or real illnesses. And that book transformed me. I thought for a long time, if they're not real illnesses, then what are they? And there are ways a person has adjusted, way a personality can be shaped by, again, a variety of factors, but however they have been shaped, the way an individual who is called mentally ill uh, behaves um, is troubled and difficult for themselves and or for the family and or for their community and or for psych, psych, uh, uh, society at large. In 1992, <clears throat> uh, during a period where I received a month, uh, I think it was not, it was quarterly, four journals a year called Theory and Psychology, which was a, uh, a journal that was related to what was called critical psychology. That is, a lot of the articles were philosophical, and a lot of the articles dealt with topics that I found of great interest, and many to others, but I'm not even sure the journal uh, has ever been discontinued. I'm going to have to, when I hang up, see if it still is. But anyway, um, Critical psychology, you know, levied a number of, of uh, uh, bombs, of, of, of critiques against the idea that psychology was the science of behavior, um, and that's basically what it was. And I won't go into why that's so problematic in general, and for me as a, as a psychologist, as I went through my education both before and after school, but in 1992, this particular article called my, caught my idea, and the whole title is a long title, but it ends up Persons as Politicians. And I read the article, and I was, that was it. Just as if I had finished Thomas Zoss's book, I now had a, a story that I wanted to embed in my work as a psychologist. Human beings are all politicians in the sense that if you study what's called political science, it is the study of how human beings resolve conflict. And the notion of politics is that it's everywhere. It's in our personal relationships. It's in our social relationships. Our communities have politics. We're now discussing and watching the politics unfold of democracy versus authoritarianism, which I'll spend some time more than usual discussing, if not today, then my next broadcast, um, because conflict is inevitable. For only the reason, if for only the reason, that we're all unique and different. 
So that while we need other people to survive and to thrive, while we need to have relationships that life uh, evolutionarily has created us as being, having no relationships, no love in our lives, no support, as not only emotionally unbearable, I mean, loneliness is one of the, the, the big killers of old age people who, who have no spouse, no friends, uh, and, and are lonely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if you want to break down a criminal in a prison, put them in solitary confinement uh, for long periods of time, and not even such long periods of time. Um, so we need people. But at the same time, as I have been arguing throughout these broadcasts and in my books, we need to be individuals and express ourselves as individuals. And the result is conflict. Conflict between people and conflict within people. We have conflicts. What do I do for others versus what do I do for myself? How do I work that out? Um, what's interesting then about looking at politics itself is that political scientists discern there are different modes by which people reduce and work out conflict. Thank you. Um, when, when, when we work out this conflict, it can either be in an authoritarian system, a democratic system, and, or an anarchy. Now, I don't talk much about anarchy in my book. I mention it. And in fact, if I do this revision, and I, I think I will do this revision, even if I leave it as my last will and testament, uh, publish it, and then <laughs> I'm finished, uh, uh, if, if you do that and you read the theoretical basis of, it, of, of uh, uh, anarchy is an extreme form of democracy where there's really no leadership. Everybody is equal um, in making decisions. And a history of anarchy seems to reveal that it ends up in authoritarianism. We need a social organization and we need authority. Children, I don't think, do well in an anarchy. They need relationships. The most prevalent form of social politics historically is authoritarianism. In authoritarianism, you have a hierarchy, a layered hierarchy. Um, the, the hierarchy has the leaders at the top and the people who are differentiated in the society as to what they do and how they do it below. And there could be many levels in an authoritarian hierarchy. Uh, in my book, I, I make some controversial statements and said uh, that it is the default system of politics for human beings. Uh, the moment human beings invented God, and that's my belief, uh, whether there is or isn't a God, I don't know, uh, but I 
take it as a matter of faith that, as Einstein said, there's a God in the universe, but he doesn't know our name. I don't believe it's a he or a she. Um, so once we invented the God and we began to make deals with this God, um, we created a hierarchy, an all-powerful being who could grant our most fervent wishes. And the one that is the sticking point that creates so much of authoritarianism is the idea that if we get the favor of the gods or God, we don't have to die. At least physically we could die, but our consciousness or what in religion is called the soul uh, uh, mind is the secular version of soul and is often used in the same way as soul as something that is as an entity that it has some kind of actual existence independent of uh, uh, the way in which our nervous system functions as we interact with the world in and around us so that this now is a, a, a a, a hierarchical system in which those who interpret who lives forever and who doesn't uh, in the Christian version uh, who lives in heaven a paradise forever with God and who goes to hell and is tortured forever by the devil this creates a need for so, a way of socially controlling and in the authoritarian system, those who are favored by God or the gods uh, have the right to create all the laws and the rules. And one of the ways in which the conflict about guilt and shame about hurting other people can be resolved is to say that some people are innately inferior to others because they are less than fully human, and that they are less favored by God. All right? So I won't go into the politics of the religion beyond this, but in the hierarchical thinking, right, it is important for people to be obedient to authority. And again, I think I've discussed this before. One of the things that amazes me is when I was in, in, in Hebrew school as a child, and I loved the stories that I read, especially on Sunday morning, that Rabbi would discuss uh, uh, the different stories in the Bible. Genesis. God was a creative force. God created the universe. God created night and day and all the animals and everything else in the entire universe. Then created us. Last of all, his crowning achievement as us. First they created men. And then because Adam, the first man, complained, he created a woman. Right? She was the afterthought. <laughs> and in the authoritarianism of our most cultures, it's still the afterthought. It's a battle that goes on and on and on. The, the hierarchical system now says, I can uh, I, can, I can own the business and you could work for me, but I get all the money or most of it. And you're lucky if you can get to eat. It justifies slavery. 
It justifies the endless killing we do in war. God is on our side. We are the superior beings. America is the golden city on a hill. I'm afraid to turn on the television after I finish doing this show uh, to see where the golden city on the hill is at this moment. The long struggle of democracy came through the fact that human beings are intellectually inquisitive and did a lot of learning and a lot of teaching. Schools developed. Reading became more universal. Um, Education not only became a privilege for the wealthy, but it became secularized so that it was no longer religious education that was taught, but religious education in, 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 in our democracy is separated from secular education. No one religion is taught, even though I taught in a, in a Catholic college, St. John's University, there was nobody who asked me my religion when I got hired by the chairman of the psych department, nor anybody looked at what I taught or the articles uh, that I had my students read. None of them dealt with anything religious. They were secular in nature. They dealt with psychology and the politics of psychology. But psychology was the topic, not the specifically politics, and never particularly religion. And if I taught religion, it, something related to religion, it had to do with politics. Uh, Philip Tetlock's article that, that was still stewing around in my head as I was developing ideas. But never would I say anything about anybody's religion uh, for a variety of reasons, because as long as somebody doesn't demand of me, I believe their religion and it shaped my psychology or the psychology I write about and teach, uh, we keep it separate. And that's fine, fine and necessary. People need to believe what they're going to believe. In the democracy which emerged out of this, all this growing education, and the growing unhappiness that people had, and the rise of philosophy, which people now read. Last week I talked about Kant, Immanuel Kant's notion of the categorical imperative that the basic morality had to be that all human beings had the same value as all other human beings, and that no human beings should use others or themselves as an object to be manipulated but as an end in and of themselves. This percolated and permeated until the notion of, of uh, uh, a more equal distribution of, of uh, power and decision-making, which is, I believe, necessary, was created. So the leader may have more perks, but the leader is not to be seen as essentially uh, a more worthwhile than the people who are led. And if I turn on the television, those protests are exactly about that. A psychology that some of us in this country, especially who are white, are somehow innately superior to those who have other skin. And I am sensitive to that in a variety of ways. And why I want to make my voice clear about this 
is because as a Jew, had I been born to the same parents in Europe, had they not had my had not grandparents who emigrated to the United States in the early part of the 20th century, I wouldn't be here now. I would have been killed because I was a member of the Jewish race. Now, along the lines of this, I'll discuss race at another time, but race doesn't exist. It's not a legitimate concept. It's socially constructed. The individual differences in people are mostly and mainly cultural and the result of economics and politics and their own individual biology, which brings them into the world as not only part of the human race in its totality, but as individuals. So, I believe deeply in a democracy. I believe deeply in it because I wouldn't be here if my parents didn't raise me in the Bronx, which was filled with authoritarianism, and eventually I'm going to talk about education and the struggle within an educational system to make it less authoritarian uh, uh, and make it more democratic. Uh, uh, I wanted to talk about, uh, uh, I did last week, the intelligence testing, which sorts children out and assumes that there's some biological ability that uh, or genetic ability that makes some people innately smarter than others. <clears throat> and it's a destructive authoritarian notion. Which now really brings me to the idea of why I am talking today about this particular topic, and I think I've laid it out well. There is no such thing as mental illness until somebody is diagnosed as mentally ill. People can be so unhappy, so filled with despair, they don't want to live anymore, and they will take their own lives. But that's a state of mind that needs to be understood in terms of that individual and the context in which they were raised and lived their life. Right now, I'm having trouble putting myself into the mind of a man who has a family and has no job and is afraid to go to work if he does have a job because he has to show up and be exposed to a virus that could kill him or change his life forever, which he could then bring home and have the effect on, on his family or, or his parents if he sees them, who as older people seem to be more vulnerable uh, to not surviving this particular virus. And standing on a line for three or four hours to get free food. Um, the specific incident that set me off was the killing of George Floyd by a so-called officer of the law leaning on his neck for eight minutes, clearly to me murdering him. And, and, and it's, it's just part of a long penelope, a long history of, of this kind of authoritarian abuse in which the Jew in Europe who was seen as the devil that had to be exterminated ultimately uh, by the master race and here the same thing in which a person of color 
who begs for his life and says, I can't, ble- I can't breathe. Mama, mama, I can't breathe, is allowed to be killed while other officers stand by or maybe one of them or two of them pressed on his chest to keep him down and therefore further impeded his ability to fill his lungs with oxygen. It has to stop. Now, I can't be out there. I'm too old to be out there. But I want to use this to create an idea that nobody should be dehumanized or demonized, which is exactly what the psychiatric model of human behavior called mental illness does. It creates a hierarchy in which people who are given serious labels like schizophrenia, uh, uh, bipolar disorder, uh, a number of others, people who become anxious are then worried they have a mental disease And I'm going to do, again, another show along the way on the nature of anxiety and why so many people become anxious, especially in authoritarian situations in which they're told that what they have experienced are a dream or that they're lying. And the very mode by which they experience the world is called into question thereby putting them not only into anxiety, but also many times into a panic state. Because without our ability to look at the world around us and in us and say, this is what's going on and this is what I think is the fact and this is the moral interpretation of that fact, we're lost. We're lost. It's like being blind and wandering around in the woods. Uh, uh, without direction. So, I'm not going to do a second show. I have talked many times. Right now, I won't do the second part of this. I'm going to keep this to a half an hour uh, about specifically how once people are labeled and they internalize the label, once the oppressed see themselves and define themselves through the oppressor's eyes, whether this is in political terms or, or racial terms or social terms or psychiatric terms, which in some ways is even more pernicious, the oppressor wins. Once a person accepts that they are a damaged human being and that nothing can be done for their their, their, their chemical imbalance in their brain or the genetic problem that has shaped them, they're, they're done, and they live a very different life. Right? And, and if they disagree with their psychiatrist or their clinical psychologist or their so-called clinical social worker, I say so-called, I should say so-called clinical psychologist as well, there's nothing clinical about what I did. And my history in this was when I was still a student, I once had a fantasy that I was going to find the therapeutic cure for schizophrenia. And then I read Zoss, and then I read Tetlock, and I read a lot of philosophy, and I saw the field from the outside, not from the inside, and I realized it was bullshit. And let me finish my show today by apologizing to everyone that I ever diagnosed, particularly the second half of my career, 
where I did it because I had to earn a living. Right? Now, I should add, my guilt is not all that intense. I'm sorry for it. Because once I realized that the diagnosis was bullshit and it had to be done, for those individuals who understood it, I made them complicit. I only used, and I know a lot of colleagues and friends in the field who do this, the least pernicious type, the least nasty type of, of diagnosis. Probably the most used is adjustment disorder. Now, some of the things that drive people nuts, like uh, uh, not having food and worrying about the virus and standing two hours online to get a basket of food and having no choice in what's in the basket, uh, I don't know how anybody who is, starts flipping out from that and really becoming upset and anxious and angry and, and, and having all kinds of physical manifestations should be called disordered. But the idea that it's called an adjustment problem at least says it's temporary and that once the individual is in another situation or learns better how to deal with it, things will improve for them psychologically. But I still did it, and I'm relieved, not that I'm out of my field, because I love my work. I love my teaching. I love what I taught. And towards, again, the second half of my teaching, I tried to get my students as well as I could to understand that when they make a deal with a therapist of any stripe and get diagnosed, make sure they know what the diagnosis is, Make sure they look it up and understand what it means. Make sure that they ask their therapist, what are your notes that you write about me? And ask to see them. I just had my blood work this morning. Next, uh, for, uh, next Tuesday, I will see my doctor. And before he sees me, the PAC, the physician's assistant, will give me a copy of my blood work. It's not a secret, it's mine. And she puts up on the screen what the doctor has written about me and his impressions, and it's free to read it. And there's nothing there that ever upsets me except if it says I have the beginnings of or a hint of a dread disease and I have to go for more testing. But those aren't moral judgments. Those aren't saying I'm an inferior being, that I'm trapped within the situation. And if I have another cancer and I don't want to treat it, I'm free to go home and live and die as I wish. Not so if you say to your psychiatrist or your therapist, no, I, I, I ignore this, I repudiate this, this is going to be evidence of more mental illness. And so that's where we are. I want that system to end. And I want it to end, not only because I haven't done this yet today, and I won't, because it damages individuals, but it's damaging our society at the point at which tens and tens of millions of people accept that if they're anxious, if they're sad, if they're in grief, they're mentally ill, is undermining the ability of these people to see themselves as the full equal partners in the society with the same rights as everybody else.
And so nobody has called in. Uh, I would have enjoyed that. And we have a half an hour. I'm going to turn this off. And I will set up by tomorrow or t- late tonight or tomorrow uh, a- a- another broadcast that will pick up from here. What happens when you're diagnosed mentally ill and how does it undermine our democracy and what can be done about it and how to resist your oppressor, how to disagree. Must do that. All of us must do that. And this is my way in this series and in my show and in the book I wrote, Psychotherapy and the Stories We Live By, which I hope people will go and buy, not only because of my ego needs and because I'd like to get back the money I spent uh, uh, so I can publish my next edition of it, but because I truly believe that if all the people who read this book and then read uh, uh, Jim Gottstein's book that I did a show with him some time ago called The Zyprexa Papers, and a colleague of mine, Chuck Ruby, who is, has a wonderful book, Smoke and Mirrors, which I already discussed with him pre-publication. If you go into the archives, you can see that book. All of them will sell a million copies, and all of them might add weight and power to an argument that ends the psychiatric model, the medical model of, of uh, labeling people and having them accept their inferiority hidden within a non-medical, pseudo-medical bullshit diagnosis. As Edward R. Murrow used to say, good night and stay well. Or is that what he said? doesn't matter. I'm ending my episode now.